Ben, thank you for uh, thanks for inviting me. So Nirv is right. Um, my my interest in research uh, has been on influenza pathogenesis for the last um, five years, uh, and then when Ebola uh, came, I've I've sort of transitioned to have an interest uh, in Ebola with given some experience working in the containment labs at, at NIH. But today we're going to talk about sort of the first love and, and interest, which is. Um, the pathogenesis and treatment of uh, severe influenza infection. So I don't have anything to disclose uh, financially, and I'll not be discussing off-label uses of, uh, of drugs. So we have three primary objectives for today. So one is to review the epidemiology of severe influenza infection. The second is to sort of summarize the pathogenesis of severe influenza with a focus on the role of bacterial co-infection, which has been a particular area of uh, research interest. And then finally, to review uh, the diagnosis and, and treatment of severe infection. So in order to do this, we have to spend a little time talking about the biology of the virus. Um, so influenza is an envelope, single-stranded RNA virus. It has a segmented genome. Uh, each of the genome segments uh, is made up of an RNA, a nuclear protein, and the polymerase proteins. And the eight segments are referred to as the ribonuclear protein segments uh, within the virus. Um, the virus has two surface glycoproteins. The first is hemagglutinin, which is largely responsible for the virus being able to bind to the respiratory epithelial cells. And the second is uh, neuraminidase, which is largely responsible for the virus being able to bud off of respiratory epithelial cells after it's gone through its replicative um, life cycle. The other important thing to know about hemagglutinin and neuraminidase are that those are the surface glycoproteins to which we develop uh, antigenic protection. Uh, and it's the HA, the surface glycoprotein, that actually changes uh, its either protein configuration or its degree of glycosylation or sort of um, coating with sugars from year to year such that each year uh, the uh, protection that we uh, gain from the prior year's vaccine is, is no longer uh, largely useful. So it's the, and that's, uh, that change in the HA is uh, referred to as antigenic drift. The other thing to know about the influenza viruses that makes it useful to sort of begin to understand the scope of them is how we refer to the subtypes. So you hear the language about H this and, and that. So there's ultimately 18 HA subtypes and 11 NA subtypes. So it's the combinations of those HAs and NAs that make up the nomenclature by which we refer to influenza viruses. So um, and you'll see uh, why that's relevant in a second here. I want to talk a little bit about host. Quick question. Please. Are, are there more proteins coming out of those 18? 10. 10. Yeah, 10, 10 total proteins. Um, the other proteins that we didn't talk about are structural proteins. So there's an M1 and an M2 protein. Uh, there's a sort of list of where what role each and every one of these pl plays. Um, we sort of discussed HA and NA, M1, M2, largely structural, and then the polymerase, PB1, PB2, uh, as well as um, uh, the, um, the, um, uh, the other proteins that make up the, the gene segment, so it's a total. Are those proteins involved in, in one strain to another strain? They're universal. 
So the only the only protein um, there's actually a recently uh, uh, discovered uh, protein, the most recently discovered protein, which came out of um, the lab that I'm working in, Jeff Talmberger's lab, and a lab in in England, um, which is thought to potentially you know play a role in certain strains. And one of the questions about influenza is. You know, of these, um, of of the segments and of the proteins that they produce, how do each one of those individually contribute to pathogenesis? And so, with the advent of sort of reverse genetics, where you can, you know, recreate viruses with a recombination of one or another protein segments, you can begin to study in animal models and in vitro if you swap out one to try to get at. You know what is that about an under one specific protein or segment that actually contributes to pathogenesis, um, and a lot of work has been done on that in the lab that I've been in for the last five years, largely focusing on the 1918 virus, um, uh, which was which was you know caused uh, an estimated 50 million infections uh, worldwide. But that gets to um, intrinsic uh, virulence of the virus itself. You know the contribution of, of uh, of the different components of the virus to, to virulence, um, and the short answer is there's, it's, a, it's a complex process. The other big question about influenza is, relates to um, host range and how host switch takes place. And so to begin to understand that, you have to understand a little bit about the concept of um, uh, reassortment. And so Nearly all subtypes of influenza are found in birds, largely uh, wild birds and, and domestic, um, domestic birds. Uh, they're thought to be the reservoir, which means that the virus can replicate but not necessarily cause disease in, in the reservoir. Now there are some exceptions that we'll discuss. Uh, and then there's other intermediate hosts, and the intermediate host range is actually fairly widespread among mammals, into pigs, horses, dogs, whales seals, etc., really quite broad, um, and that some of these uh, mammals are known to be mixing vessels for flu, and we know that that's at least the case for birds uh, and for, for pigs um, and, potentially, and potentially others. And the concept behind that is that two independent strains or subtypes of influenza end up infecting the same cell, so if you have a permissive um, if you have a permissive animal uh, or bird, uh, like like um, domestic fowl, and you have two separate viruses that infect an epithelial cell lining the gut of, of those animals, those viruses can uncoat, can go through their replication cycle, produce their ribonucleic uh, protein segments, and that when the virus is preparing to bud, some of those segments from one virus combine with segments from another virus, so that essentially you have a reassortment event. Um, and so, what does that result in? Um, it results in a discussion of what are the types of, of influenza. So again, we talked about subtypes, but how is that relevant for us? Um, so it's largely relevant to us for this first category, which are the seasonal viruses that are human-adapted viruses through whatever mechanism that causes uh, an influenza virus to actually be well adapted to humans so that it can both infect us and then we can have ongoing sustained transmission between person to person. And largely that's observed uh, what we've seen with seasonal viruses uh, starting with, with H3N2 with the pandemic in 1968 which have continued 
since then. And now largely the other virus that is predominantly circulating as a seasonal virus is an H1N1 virus, which is the 2009 pandemic virus, which replaced a previous H1N1 virus that was largely circulating for the prior decade or so. So we'll say a little bit more about seasonal viruses. Um, avian viruses, you hear a lot about this. You hear a lot about highly pathogenic avian influenza. Um, interestingly, that nomenclature is not really related to us. It's related to the birds. <laughs> Here. So, so I missed that. So, so you, you're saying that the H1, even though it's called H1N1, the H1N1 from 2009 is different than the H1N1 that's the Absolutely. So um, not all H1N1s are created the same. Uh, and so... Just because you have a subtype, uh, it's not necessarily the same type subtype. So there are different lineages of, of different subtypes. Um, and we can, I'll discuss that a little bit in the, in the swine, but this concept that if you do phylogenetic analyses of the genetic makeups of the individual gene segments and you track them all the way back, they begin to cluster. And they begin to cluster to say, where did this one likely originate and where did it spread over time? That's a great question. Um, so, I, you know, part of that likely rep is related to host adaptability. So, while there's a, a lot of uh, influenza viruses in many, many subtypes, most of them are actually not well adapted human infection and even less so to sustain human human transmission and I can get into a little bit about what the prevailing theory is that that allows an influenza virus to be adapted to the human host it's actually related to um, its preference for sialic acid receptors on host epithelial cells which we'll talk about in a second um, but some of these viruses, so the avian viruses are interesting you know there's an h7n9 and an h5n1 which likely you've heard about as causing um, an epidemic, epidemics largely in, in Asia. These are high path viruses referent to the bird because unlike other viruses that infect birds, they actually cause illness. Um, and that when these, when these viruses spill over into people as an incidental infection due to close contact with birds uh, or other, uh, or other the reservoirs or enemy hosts, they can cause incidental infections in humans. And the interesting thing about the H7N9 and the H5N1 is while they don't have, they have not adapted to be easily transmitted, you know, on an ongoing basis, they are apparently quite virulent based upon existing case fatality rates in recognized cases. Um, so the avian viruses, as an example, Swine viruses, so you may have heard about these, you can pull these up and learn about them uh, if you uh, go onto the CDC website. But the TR is tri stands for triple reassortment swine viruses. So what are these? These three um, subtypes are the primary viruses that are actually circulating in swine in the United States and have been for quite some time. Similar to humans, there are certain subtypes that will take a hold and circulate over time and then are ultimately replaced by other viruses. But what we know based upon uh, surveillance, largely passive surveillance, is that these triple reassortment, reassortment viruses have uh, uh, robinucleic protein uh, segments that originate from a North American swine lineage 
another segment that originates from a Eurasian swine lineage, and then a third segment to make up a triple assortment uh, virus. These variant viruses, the H1N1V, H3N2V, H1N2V, those are viruses that have spilled over into people that cause non-sustained uh, infections, but people that work closely with with uh, with swine uh, and that have had incidental infections. Um, interestingly, when these viruses are reported, they don't have the same clinical phenotype or have not as these avian viruses that have actually caused quite severe disease. And then we get over here to the pandemic. So what's different about a pandemic uh, than um, uh, seasonal viruses? So the pandemic, the concept behind that, again, this causes a widespread outbreak of influenza in people across the globe. This typically takes place when there is a shift or a new subtype of virus that previously enters into the population to which we do not have immunity, number one, and that number two is readily transmissible. So it's, there's a host switch event that's taking place. We don't have immune protection and it's readily transmissible. Interestingly enough, as Nir points out, pointed out, the shift is not exactly what happened with the 2009 pandemic because we previously had H1N1 circulating, just not that H1N1. We've got like five H1N1 viruses in that screen. Yeah. So using modern molecular biology, yeah. what's the difference between those viruses? I mean, I guess there has to be some difference. There's there's major differences. There's there's major differences. No, not at all. That's right. So if you take if so if you um um it's it goes back to clustering. So again, if you were to take all the H1 viruses and track back their lineage, they'll cluster together. And that's different from H1 all the way to, you know, what did we say, H18. Um, and so they do fall into subtypes, um, but not all subtypes are created equal. Yeah, presumably all those H1 proteins are actually different from all that. They are. That H1 is different from that H1, which is different from that H1. That's different correct. That H1, even though it's called H1. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Terminology needs to be improved. It's challenging. It's challenging. And, and you get this alphabet soup, which you get into the types, and you say, well, which ones do we need to be worried about? You know, because that's what we want to know, right? That's what we want to know when we see somebody with a refractory, hypoxic, respiratory failure. Which one do we need to be worried about? You know, largely the answer is, is this, the seasonal viruses. But having said that, you know, we, we also have the possibility of seeing this. The first case of H5N1 was sh showed up in Canada, a traveler. Um, and we're always at risk with global travel or somebody else with one of these. Now, so we'll get into whether or not we're going to have a chance of picking these up based upon our existing diagnoses. But largely, we're worried about this. And the other thing that we need to be conscious of are the viruses that have spilled over into people to cause severe disease but have not yet human adapted. So they have to be on our radar uh, as far as uh, as far as risk. So again, this is the slide that sort of says what do we need to be worried about right now? Um, and this is CDC data as to, you know, based upon active surveillance for picking up viral isolates um, that have been reported to CDC. So what's circulating uh, this year, this is through the end of October, 73% uh, of isolates were, were, are an H3N2 subtype. 
Um, this uh, 2009 pandemic H1N1 has taken over the prior H1N1. This is the only H1N1 that is circulating, and it makes up a small but not insignificant portion of the viruses that we're picking up. The rest of this, um, actually, the this yellow here is non-subtyped A. That just means that the lab that submitted didn't subtype it. It's likely that this yellow is um, also the 2009 pandemic. Influenza B. Influenza B is a different story. Uh, it's not as complex, which is the nice. There's only two flavors of influenza B, and it's been like that as far as for as long as we've sort of known. And those two flavors. Uh, are represented uh, one or both in the vaccine that comes out each year. So you say, um, I would be remiss if I didn't give a quick comment about vaccines. So okay, it's recommended in everybody that's six months or, or older at this point. Um, this year's vaccine, unlike the prior year's vaccine, is actually well matched to the circulating, the presently circulating strain. The vaccine each year is um, developed based upon the strains that are predominantly circulating in the southern hemisphere. So it's a bit of a guessing game, and sometimes we miss. This year's vaccine, and there's increasing flavors of vaccine, but the two main flavors of vaccine are the live attenuated and the heat inactivated uh, vaccine. The heat inactivated vaccine is either a trivalent or a quadrivalent vaccine. The trivalent vaccine means that um, there are uh, three HAs that they've predominantly targeted that will be in the vaccine to allow protection. This year's vaccine has the HA from the 2009 pandemic. That's good because it's circulating. It has the HA from the H3, from this H3 virus, which is consistent with the one that's circulating. That's good. And the third part of the try is always a B. And actually, the B is just a guess. Um, there really are no data to say which one should we go with for for uh, for the B. And there's a Yamagata and a Victoria lineage. Um, if you have the quadrivalent, you'll get coverage for both of those. Um, so moving into um, to uh, disease and pathogenesis risk factors. So this is uh, I think something that we all know: older and uh, very young age. We typically say above the age of 65 or older. Uh, age of five and less, and it, uh, mortality is increased as you get closer to uh, age one. Uh, premorbid conditions, we're all aware of this, whether it's respiratory conditions, cardiac conditions, neurologic conditions, that all predispose to more severe uh, illness. One of the things that came out following the 2009 pandemic is a BMI greater than 40 is associated with more severe disease. Um, I didn't put it up here. I should have. I oversaw it. Uh, pregnancy is also uh, associated with more severe disease. And then obviously uh, immune suppression. So just to accentuate the, the point about age, which is probably the greatest risk factor for severe disease, um, these are uh, mortality data uh, from influenza and pneumonia, which are based upon the National Vital Statistics Database. Um, uh, in the U.S. from 1976 to 2009 that give you a sense of, you know, what the mortality rates are among different age groups. And the top solid line uh, is uh, 85 and above, and you can see that while mortality rates for influenza and pneumonia are coming down, that that's still the group that has, that's impacted uh, the greatest, and that that comes down but is not insignificant as you um, decrease by uh, decade intervals. 
So back to this question about pathogenesis, we'll dig into this a little bit now that will relate to um, this concept of host switch events. Um, this is a cartoon of a virus that is interfacing with a respiratory epithelial cell. And the idea is that on our epithelial cells, we have surface glycoproteins that are decorated with sugars or glycans. And at the end of those glycans sit sialic acids. And those sialic acids are linked to their underlying glycan by three predominant linkages, alpha-2,3, alpha-2,6, and alpha-2,8 linkages. Um, it is thought that influenza viruses that are adapted to humans predominantly bind alpha-2,6 linked sialic acids. And as it turns out, the upper airway in people is largely decorated with alpha-2,6 sialic acids. There are some alpha-2,3s. As you go down lower in the airway, there are more alpha-2,3s. How well, and, and, and the, uh, the viruses that circulating largely in birds have a preference for alpha-2,3 sialic acids in the human adapted strains have a preference for alpha-2,6. It sounds like a nicely packaged story, and if it were that simple, we would just do surveillance for viruses in birds and pigs and see which ones are beginning to have a preference for 2,6 versus 2,3. Um, the story is probably not that clean, and it's, and it's not that simple. But this is the general concept that hemagglutinin binds these sialic acids on cell surface. The neuraminidase, in order to, for the virus to bud, actually has to cleave off these sialic acids for it, it to be able to release. So that gets into the neuraminidase inhibitors. So if you inhibit the function of the surface glycoprotein of influenza, you prevent its ability to cleave off these sialic acids. It essentially gets stuck on the respiratory epithelial cell and can't go on to infect neighboring cells. And that's sort of the mechanism of action between neuraminidase inhibitors. So how does flu cause disease? Well, one way is just on its own, it kills cells. Okay, so it doesn't, doesn't need any contribution from the host to come in with a raging inflammatory response uh, and to have an immune pathology. It doesn't need uh, additional secondary pathogens. It kills cells, and we've known this for a really long time. And this is sort of a sophisticated way of showing that it kills cells in a primary human airway cell model that we've developed in the lab where you grow up cells over the course of 28 days on an air-liquid interface, and at the end of that time, you know, you have a fully differentiated pseudostratified respiratory epithelial cell layer with some ciliated cells and some goblet cells that produce mucin, and if you expose them to influenza, you get pretty nifty cytopathology with loss of cell-cell type junctions and sloughing of the apical-facing cells off of the basal cell layer. And largely, this has been attributed to influenza having an ability to uh, affect the host cells' um, production of proteins. They interfere with, uh, with uh, trans translation of proteins uh, in multiple uh, pathways. So how does that translate to uh, severe disease? Well, uh, in addition to uh, replication, virus makes its way down uh, the airways. There's a contribution of the virus inhibiting interferon responses. There are some particular viral proteins that in certain models are thought to actually interfere with the, 
the body's interferon responses, which are responses that tell neighboring cells to put up defenses against subsequent viral infections. So if you inhibit interferon responses, then subsequent neighboring cells will be more susceptible to infection. Um, so these are autopsy specimens, uh, actually from, I'll show you from some from the 2009 pandemic, but these go back to the 1918 pandemic of, uh, of, 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 um, of recruits in the military camps and the pathology, I will tell you, is the same <laughs> over, over time. And so what you see is uh, bronchiolitis, um, this upper uh, right is a picture of a bronchial with uh, sloughing of the epithelial layer here into the lumen with a lot of uh, necrotic debris. And if you are to stain those, uh, uh, stain that tissue, uh, you can do immunohistochemistry staining of the tissue for flu, which is brown. You can see circumferential flu. Close up, uh, this would be the lumen. Uh, you see flu staining on the apical surface of the cells uh, throughout the respiratory tract, all the way down to the level of type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes, and even to the point where once you get to diffuse alveolar damage and you have just hyaline membrane formation, you can see evidence of influenza proteins as part of that complex of the, of the hyaline membrane uh, that's produced in the setting of flu. So flu can do plenty of damage on its own, but it doesn't commonly act alone, and that's part of the talk for today. There's a concept, the pictorial, of, uh, of uh, sort of the prevailing hypothesis about how flu predisposes to secondary bacterial infections, but the idea is that it causes injury and damage and dysfunction of respiratory epithelial cells that line the airway. Um, that those uh, injured cells, uh, it impairs a, a, a physical function to sweep up pathogens, bacteria that we microaspirate from our nasal pharynx on a relatively regular basis. Uh, but in the setting of that, uh, additionally, there are data to support that influenza exposes bacterial binding sites both on cell surfaces, on the underlying proliferative basal cell layer, as well as at the level of the basement membrane so that bacteria can set up shop and that they can undergo uh, a log logarithmic uh, growth, which they're happy to do in a, in a, uh, a, um, a relatively productive uh, environment. So what is the data on influenza and bacterial uh, co-pathogenesis? It really goes back uh, at least to the 1940s where in mouse models uh, they observed lethal synergism uh, in, in mice infected with influenza and bacteria at the same time. There have been multiple data both in, um, in cell uh, studies as well as in, uh, in, in preclinical uh, mouse work that show that influenza predisposes to increased bacterial adherence, uh, increased invasion, uh, and synergistic uh, lethality. The other part of pathogenesis, which we won't get into in, in great deal, has to do not just with the virus or the co-infecting bacteria, but, but with the host, with this idea of, um, you know, the infection actually causes alterations in the host immune response. Um, and depending upon what model and the timing of uh, co-infection, uh, bacterial co-infection relative to influenza, and the strain of virus used and the, uh, the um, species of bacteria used, uh, there are different observations. But in summary, there are evidence to suggest that co-infection alters, uh, alters the uh, immune system's response to, um, 
to uh, to infection. So what do we end up seeing uh, in the in the ICU? Well, we hopefully and avoid um, these pathologic diagnoses. Um, but on the right hand side is essentially the pathologic equivalent of um, ARDS, uh, which is diffuse alveolar damage with virus alone. And then on the left side uh, is essentially, uh, you know, densely consolidated uh, bacterial uh, pneumonia with evidence of, of damage as well. And so on the right, and again, these are, these are um, from an autopsy series from the 2009 pandemic, I'll talk about some of the clinical features uh, of uh, ME cases, medical examiner cases from New York State, where these individuals showed up more or less dead on arrival. Um, and um, in, with flu alone, you can see um, sort of these were alveoli where they're now filled with protonaceous material and the pink hyaline membranes uh, surrounding them. Uh, it's both uh, proliferative. Um, there's evidence of both proliferative and regenerative um, uh, DAD um, with uh, type 2 pneumocyte hyperplasia uh, and, um, uh, and in some cases fibrosis and scarring, etc. This is actually sort of a microabscess uh, where this is just alveoli that are just chock full of, of neutrophils and the gram stain of this was positive for um, gram-positive toxin. So if you're in the ICU or the ER and you know, your choice is to make a diagnosis of influenza, you know, what are your tools? So the tools that we have for diagnosing influenza are a growing array of rapid diagnostics, which are largely antigen-based. So the story on these really hasn't changed. There are new, and I, you know, to put a table of the, both the antigen-based and the molecular diagnostics, it's growing, it's quite large. Um, and different centers use different things. But the story on the antigen-based diagnostic, diagnostics hasn't really changed. These are n insensitive assays. So historically, the sensitivity is anywhere from 50 to 70%. So if you're in the ER or you're, you know, depending on what's, what's used here at the University of Maryland, but if you get a negative, it doesn't rule out disease. If you've got a positive that's useful, you know you've got disease. Um, some of them will give you just influenza A, which is a species level, and some of them will give you species and subtype. Um, the molecular testing is really now the, is the gold standard in the past. Before molecular testing, uh, nucleic acid testing, uh, you know, we would use uh, viral culture or rapid viral culture, which is shell vial. You'd spin it down and push it into, into uh, per, uh, permissive cells to see if you get cytopathology and then use antigen staining to detect presence or absence of virus. Viral culture has been largely replaced by molecular diagnostic testing. These come in singleplex and multiplex. Um, at NIH, we use a multiplex, uh, which will capture, you know, 15 respiratory viruses or so, and has now recently been approved for a few um, uh, bacteria as well. Um, and those tests um, can take as short as 30 minutes uh, and as long as eight hours, and depending upon which one you choose. But really, um, the gold standard is a molecular test at this point. Bacterial co-infection, I don't need to give a lecture on the utility of microbiology on respiratory specimens for diagnosing bacteria, but the long and the short of it is, I wish they were better. You know, we have the confounding problem with 
you know, we have NUMA pathogens that colonize our nasopharynx, uh, and we, um, in you know, distinguishing those from a respiratory specimen, uh, we're okay, but we're not great. And the other aspect of it is um, these these assays, you know, microbiologic assays are not particularly sensitive. So there's undoubtedly a lot of infections that we're missing just because we can't pick them up by existing microbiologic techniques. Um, so the role of molecular testing in bacterial co-infection, um, you know, it's the same, you know, we can pick it up, but then you have an issue with sensitivity, uh, an issue with specificity, you can determine it, but is it actually causing disease? And that's a challenge, but hopefully we'll make some progress with that. So ultimately, you know, presence or absence of co-infection is based upon clinical judgment. And to sort of highlight that point, I, I show this slide, which is a summary slide of 1,047 patients who were treated in ICUs during the 2009 pandemic. And, you know, you can see these came from countries around the world. The mean range from the late 20s to the 40s. Um, 30 to two, a third to two thirds of these individuals had comorbidities, which is the predominant pattern. Um, and the diagnosis of co-infection ranged anywhere from you know three three percent to a third of patients but the use of antibiotics uh, in these patients in these cohorts was universal so even though we're not diagnosing co-infection everybody's getting treated if they show up in the icu with severe pneumonia and lung injury they're all getting antibiotics um, and the timing of those antibiotics relative to and the use of antibiotics in the outpatient setting is not defined so if you're saying they don't have co-infection, is that relative to uh, said antibiotics in the outpatient setting, the specimen was collected before or after they had their first dose of antibiotics in the, in the ER, et cetera, et cetera. Now, 14 to 40% mortality uh, in this cohort. And just to say a little something about the natural history of influenza and how it's changed over time, we did a comparison of a cohort of individuals with fatal 1918 infection and compared it to this uh, cohort from the New York Medical Examiner's Office to draw some parallels in what happens in patients that don't that are not essentially not treated for, for disease. And back in 1918, that was a pre-antibiotic era. In 2009, um, most of these cases, you know, if they had antibiotics, it was as an outpatient because these showed up as medical examiner's cases and were close to, to dead on arrival. So we looked at 68 patients from 1918, 34 from 2009. In 1918, there's a huge, huge series that shows that more or less everybody that died of 1918 infection had bacterial co-infection. Um, and that's based on a comprehensive review of the autopsies, over 5,000 that were published at the time, looking at histopathology and microbiology reports from the time which they had the ability to do, and everybody back then had co-infection. If you take this cohort that didn't have arguably an uh, opportunity for treatment, 55% of them had evidence of co-infection at the time of death, and it's unclear what percent of those actually got antibiotics on an outpatient basis. So this is a big problem. They were younger back then than they are now. Uh, they had the same presenting uh, illness, fever, and, and muscle pain, which ultimately progressed to shortness of breath uh, and, and uh, you know respiratory failure. Back then, they were in military camps, so they showed up to care within three days. Here, the timing for them to come to care six days is about consistent. The largest cohort study, which Lou uh, Party was from your group, 
was part of where they described this, people showed up to the hospital 5.2 days post-symptom onset. So, and they were in the ICU within one day. So the time from symptom onset to presentation is 5.2 days and they're in the ICU a day later. And if you don't do anything, they're dead by day seven. Now obviously in our critical care cohorts, they last a lot longer because we can support them, et cetera, et cetera. But the timing to death from initial symptom onset hasn't changed over time. And many of these people are dying with co-infection. So in, in that population, is the age difference because the life expectancy is different between the population and the population This is population and the population and the population and the population the population that was susceptible to the 2009 pandemic sort of fell in this middle age group. Um, back then in 1918, uh, mysterious W-shaped curve uh, where the mortality looks like a W and the young and the old, but there's this enormous peak in the middle. And that peak is is young, otherwise healthy individuals. And if you can explain the W-shaped curve, you will be famous because as of now, it still has not yet been explained. Well, also, so it's also, yeah, that is reflective. Uh, but so that's reflect. This is all young, healthy. This is this is all from military camp. So that is reflective. But the overall average is not that far off. Uh, it's predominantly younger individuals uh, in, with the, the 1918. No, um, the pandemic was different. So the seasonal virus is it's it's predominantly 65 years of age and older, and five years of age and younger, and the middle age groups uh, are you know relatively low mortality, um, very low mortality. Um, this 42 is again related to susceptibility. So there are some data where they have bank serum from older age groups that suggest that older age groups actually had some cross-protective antibodies in their sera to the 2009 pandemic, which presumably afforded some protection to the typically increased risk population, but not this younger population. So um, what are you going to do to collect? So. Um, um, this is for specimen collection. Nasopharyngeal swab or aspirate are more or less what we go for. Uh, if you're going to be doing bronchoalveolar lavage, that's another specimen uh, type that you'd want to collect. Um, if you're doing the swab, uh, the recommendation is to use a synthetic and not cotton swab because it's harder to get the absorbent material out of the cotton than it is some of these newer uh, uh, microfiber swabs and the wood handle on your cotton swab actually interferes with the molecular assays. So it actually matters what you choose. Um, these things should go into viral transport media and they can be stored at refrigeration temperature, uh, which is four degrees Celsius for up to 48 hours. They can then be tested for mo using molecular tests. Or, uh, you know, if there's a question about, you know, uh, the specific virus that you have, you can subsequently grow virus uh, from that material uh, as well. If one were to have a case where they wanted to be able to do some downstream testing of a specimen, um, after 48 hours, you would want to freeze that specimen to minus, uh, to less than less than or equal to minus 70 in order to preserve it. You'll begin to have all drop off 
uh, in, in refrigerator temperature after 48 to 72 hours. Um, when to collect within seven days of symptom onset, the CDC actually says within four days, but we know from both healthy volunteer studies uh, as well as natural history studies that on average in adults, virus is shed from the upper respiratory tract for up to seven days. Um, in the lower respiratory tract, there are reports using uh, paired specimens, which are infrequently done, for in lower tract specimens, uh, where they've used new uh, molecular assays, where for up to nine days or so, they've been able to pick up virus uh, using molecular assays in the lower tract when it's uh, concurrently negative in the upper tract. I will say the caveat to this is that patients that are immune suppressed on steroids or have other immune suppression, they can shed virus for weeks and it's been documented for months at a time. And those are the those are the patients that you begin to get into this question of, you know, do we have somebody with a uh, resistant isolate that we need to think about a, a different approach to quote unquote treatment, which I'll touch on briefly in the coming slides as they relate to the use of neuraminidase inhibitors. You're all aware that we don't have much in the way of an armamentarium for the treatment of flu, but our armamentarium largely consists of these neuraminidase inhibitors. Um, you know, they have historically been, you know, alsatamivir and uh, zanamivir, uh, inhaled zanamivir, and the studies to look at uh, efficacy of those have largely been done in healthy outpatient populations. There have now been, I believe, five meta-analyses, two of which were Cochrane reviews that have looked at the utility of uh, neuraminidase inhibitors with regard to effectiveness and efficacy for treatment of influenza. The long and the short of it is that for outpatients, um, the data supports neuraminidase inhibitors decrease the length of symptomatology. The most recent uh, COC review, which was a 2014 review, uh, did not support that neuraminidase inhibitors uh, reduce the frequency of lower respiratory tract uh, complications. This was an old meta-analysis from 20, 2003 where there was a significant reduction in lower tract complications, reevaluation of that data showed that the benefit was in bronchitis and not pneumonia. So there's really no data to show that these prevent pneumonia. And so that, that actually has tainted all of our thinking because, and all of this is with starting drugs within 48 hours of symptom onset. And it's tainted our thinking in the ICU because it's to a degree led to the concept of you know medical nihilism if they haven't gotten it within 42 hours it's not going to show benefit the truth is it's never been studied in a prospective way in inpatient populations and so the 2009 pandemic afforded an opportunity not to look at this perspective we failed we missed the opportunity to look at this prospectively but and arguably it'll never be looked at in a randomized uh, fashion but we were able to look at this retrospectively where data from 78 centers and over 29,000 patients individual level data were evaluated to characterize in uh, regression analyses um, the association between neuraminidase uh, inhibitor treatment and mortality and the long and the short of, of this study that was published in 2014 from Lancet Respiratory Medicine showed that neuraminidase inhibitors um, given versus not given in an ICU patient population resulted in decreased mortality. Neuraminidase inhibitors given earlier 
versus later in an inpatient population resulted in a decreased mortality. And that, and that data was then modeled to say what is the relationship between exact timing by day of hazard ratio for death. And that's what's shown here, which is to say that their baseline was neuraminidase inhibitor treatment within two days, which is not blue line and had you know, uh, over 90% survival, and then the hazard ratio for death increased incrementally as you, uh, as treatment was delayed up to five days. So taking this data, it actually fits with the current CDC recommendations for patients that are admitted to the hospital where you suspect they have influenza infection. And this is somebody that has an ILI illness, influenza-like illness during respiratory evolved season, recommendation is impaired treatment. You treat them until, you, until proven otherwise. And if it's proven otherwise, you have to say what assay do we use? Is this a rapid antigen-based assay? Is it a molecular assay? What was the timing of the assay relative to symptom onset to whether or not you believe it and are going to implement a full course of neuraminidase inhibitor treatment? Um, and so that's ultimately the take-home message for us. If you have somebody with flu-like symptoms in, during flu season and they've got respiratory failure, they all get, they all get therapy with neuraminidase inhibitors. And so in your study of why the difference in mortality and early within two days and why for cancer risk we're looking at what is Yeah, like within a ten percent margin. Yeah, so uh, so two questions. Would you recommend not taking after those are good questions and they sound like they have an ethical bent to them <laughs> uh, no, 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 you're, you're good, you're good. Fortunately, we're, we're making our way through this here. So, um, you know, my, my response to you would be that in the absence of uh, a rationing scenario, I think uh, we have imperfect data, but the imperfect data is telling us that we should be treating all of these patients if they're under suspicion for severe influenza infection. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is that the difference Well, when you're on the margins of mortality, uh, you, know, uh, you know, from an ethical perspective, uh, if you can reduce mortality by one, two, three percent, that's what we do. You know, that's, that's, that's our goal. You know, our goal is to work as much on the margins as possible. I mean, it would be nice in this patient population if mortality was 15 to 25 percent, but if it is, and we can get it down to 10 percent, you know, we should be shooting for that. Well, um, I think I agree with that. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the difference in mortality uh, between early and late is not that great enough to, 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 to be able to say to a patient, well, you know, you got here too late. I think if the drug's available, you give the drug. I think if the drug's not available, arguably the rationing scenarios about neuraminidase inhibitors have not really been so much 
around treatment. They've, the, the arguments and the discussions have largely been around uh, secondary prevention. Um, use of these uh, to, uh, to slow the course of the outbreak in a population setting so that you have more time uh, to develop an effective vaccine, understanding that largely the technology developed those vaccines is, is dates back to the 1960s and takes six months. So most of those arguments, so if, you know, if you're in an inpatient setting, you know, I, I would push it back on the institution and say, you know, you got to talk to your ethicists as well to kind of define, uh, you know, who, who gets uh, drug and, and who doesn't. Um, <laughs> but what, 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 but what drugs should you use? Because this is an important question too. Um, and you are all likely aware that last year, Paramrevir, which is the IV formulation of neuraminidase inhibitors, was approved uh, for use by the FDA. Current recommendations are still that uh, people with uh, influenza infection are treated with Alsatamivir, which is an oral formulation, 75 milligrams twice daily. The two strains that are currently circulating now have are largely susceptible to those drugs, and the order of 90-some percent uh, are, of those isolates are susceptible. Also, Tamivir, although given orally or by NG or other by the enteric route, um, has excellent bioavailability. There are PK and PTD data um, in, in shock, in CRT. Um, actually, there's data in ECMO that suggests that the, uh, the oral route uh, allows for excellent bioavailability. Bio there have been some studies during the 2009 pandemic that have looked at dose to say if you double this, will it do better? There's no data to support that. So the current recommendations are that they get alsatamivir. That's simple enough. When do you think about paramivir? Those are the people where you really have no enteral ag. They have GI bleeding and there's no, and in those cases, if they have severe influenza infection, the recommendation is that they get IV paramivir. And they don't get the outpatient dosing, which is a single dose uh, IM. They get uh, five days worth of IV dosing of paramivir. When do you think about, uh, so, it's enamivir. You know, we don't use enamivir because this is an inhaled formulation. The FDA-approved formulation of enamivir is an inhaled formulation. We don't use that in critically ill patients because there's been association with bronchospasm and uh, in, in, uh, in patients with COPD or asthma or, or respiratory failure. So it's actually not one of the formulations that we use in critically ill patients. There's an IV formulation of zanamivir that is undergoing an uh, experimental investigational new drug, uh, 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 and, and, there, and there's an approval to get the, the drug under, under that um, situation from uh, FDA, and, and when should you think about IV zanamivir passes? That, that's the patient where um, they have refractory respiratory failure. You actually are testing for virus uh, by whatever acid, you, and you're still finding virus after your X number of period, and you think that ongoing viral replication is contributing to disease, and then that that then that triggers you being in touch with your hospital epidemiologist, then being in touch with the state uh, and and federal health officials, so that they have an isolate of your virus. They do a, a rather standard test looking for presence or absence of oseltamivir uh, resistance. Uh, and if the answer is yes, then zanamivir is what you go for because 
the isolates that are resistant to oxytamivir or paramivir are largely susceptible to zanamivir. These are in vitro. These are in vitro assays, um, and there's uh, there's one piece, and the other piece is that there are known um, uh, segments of the virus that are associated with resistance. So the um, the at the 275 site, uh, there, if you remember, in 2000, I think it's six and seven. At that time, the H1N1 strain that was circulating was almost universally resistant to neuraminidase inhibitors. Fortunately, it was still susceptible to the amanidines, but it was largely resistant to uh, the neuraminidase inhibitors. That strain of the H1N1 is largely replaced, is gone. It has been replaced by the 2009 pandemic strain, which, along with the current circulating H3N2 strain, is susceptible. Almost all those isolates are susceptible. So this shouldn't be an issue. This is sort of like the rare and the rare, and you're saying, here's my person with refractory failure. What do I do about it? They're still shedding virus, and then you need to reach out to your local and state health officials to get testing for resistance. Um, antibiotics. The message on antibiotics is um, you treat for um, you treat for for bacterial pneumopathogens. This is strep pneumo, strep pyogenes, and largely from the 2009 cohorts that came out. This is Staph aureus. Staph aureus was the predominant isolate that was identified, and the majority of the Staph aureus isolates that were picked up in patients with flu were MRSA. So if you follow CAP guidelines and you're not thinking about flu and you're just giving them, you know, ceftriaxone plus, you know, Azithro or you're giving them a quinolone, um, you're not covering for MRSA and, uh, and that's a major issue. And that's a major issue. So it's something to think about. If you're thinking about severe flu, you know, it should be neuraminidase inhibitors and antibiotics plus coverage for VANC until you can prove that that's not the issue. Um, timing of antibiotics, you know, the data in, in pneumonia, these are large studies and actually to be fair there are some data that show that earlier doesn't make a difference and this is a this is an argument for the for the guideline committees for cap but at the end of the day you know the concept of earlier is better is a generally good concept to, to stick by when you're thinking about antibiotics um, adjunct therapy um, Lou and I had some nice conversations about this um, you know, there's no defined benefit of specific rescue modalities for refractory hypoxia. There are, there are people that are interested in studying that as it relates particularly to hypoxic respiratory failure due to influenza and the implications that it has to stockpiling uh, in the setting of a pandemic and, and how we are able to manage those. Um, there are people that are strong proponents of immune modulating agents that have pleiotropic effects that don't have defined mechanisms. There are no data to support that these make a difference, and the main one, yeah, and this is, it's, it's like, yeah, so, you know, there, there were folks that pushed for doing the, the, the randomized trial for statins in respiratory failure, and, and that data suggests no benefit, right? No benefit. Um, this is retrospective data. Steroids may be harmful. So you think about the use of steroids in inflammatory conditions and the absence of refractory shock, uh, the, the data on uh, severe flu infection actually suggests steroids might, may do more harm than good. Um, so what's the summary? Uh, Have you heard anything about uh, 
Yeah, I'm not sure where Sirolimus fell in. Was it clinical data or preclinical data? As far as having effectiveness, there is a relative. Um, there, you know, there are a number of agents that you know people have thought about repurposing. Um, I haven't seen any data that there's benefit, and I think part of the challenge with um, immune modulating agents are the problems that we've run into historically for the treatment of respiratory failure and sepsis, which is that you know they probably you have to have the right population, which is a, a distinct population when we have a heterogeneous population. Um, they're probably timing dependent, so you have to know where people are on the course of their disease, uh, and then you have to say, you know, and you have to know when that specific intervention is going to result in an improved outcome. And oftentimes. At the clinical setting, we don't have that information, and so it's hard to sort of tease out. Um, Co-infection is important. Diagnostic challenges make it difficult to differentiate between flu alone versus co-infection. Uh, treatment delays are likely associated with worse outcomes, and so ultimately, the take-home points: uh, patients with severe influenza infection often show up to us late, 5.2 days to the hospital, 6.2 days to the ICU and they get sick very quickly. Um, so we need to be conscious of that. Bacterial co-infection, I argue, and some disagree, but I argue that it's the rule uh, and not the exception, and you need to think about uh, coverage for MRSA. Um, molecular diagnostic assays are the gold standard. There are issues with cost and availability and, and everything else, but ultimately this is the direction that things are going. Um, and early diagnosis and intervention may improve outcome. And that's it.